Good evening. Uh, my name is J.P. Watson. Uh, I am a church planner and pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Inglewood, uh, just up the road. And road and Deer Creek uh, is our host church for our church plants. Uh, so you guys are sending us out to start a, a new work. We're super thankful. Uh, we're super excited about what all the Lord has uh, in store uh, for His church uh, growing and multiplying and seeing new churches uh, started. But we are here tonight uh, to take a look at Mark chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you would like to, turn open with me to Mark chapter 15. We're just going to read verses 33 uh, through 41, and then we'll pray and we'll jump in. And this is God's word for us this evening. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he had breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Let's pray together. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you have uh, brought us here uh, this evening uh, to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you that you are the kind of God who loves us so much that you desire and want to commune with us and communicate to us. And you've done that through your word. And you've done that through giving us your one and only son, who is the word made flesh, come to dwell among us. And so we pray that you would be with us this evening. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, help us to see how wonderful, how beautiful, how lovely, how believable our Savior is. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you ever make your way out to western North Carolina, it's worth your time to, to make it to this small town called Linville. Uh, and in Linville, uh, North Carolina, it's not too far from Asheville. Most people kind of know where Asheville is. There is a, there's a massive gorge that runs right through Linville. And so you can see all of that, the waterfalls and, and everything, and it's really, really beautiful. But there are also some caverns that are there as well, too. And you can actually go and you can visit these caverns, and you can actually go inside the caverns deep into the mountain, and they'll give you a tour of these limestone caverns uh, that are in the Appalachian Mountains there. Well, several years ago, my family and I found our way out there, and we went uh, to take a, uh, take a trip into these caverns. And so we went in. We got a tour guide. The tour guide was walking us all around. They had lights on lining the inside of this mountain so that you could see. And then at one point in the tour, uh, the guide said, would you like to feel what it feels like to turn the lights out and to be in total darkness? And uh, I was a little bit hesitant on that one. I don't like the idea of just being stuck in the dark, but it was part of the tour. So why not do it? Well, the tour guide turned out the lights that were inside of the caverns, and we were in absolute 
total darkness. Anybody ever been in absolute total darkness before? Okay. It's a real nerve-wracking feeling, isn't it? You don't know where you are. You can't see anything. You can't see your hand in front of your face. You, you reach out. You, you, you have literally no idea. You cannot see anything. You are blind and you are in total, utter darkness. It's a fearful feeling. It's confusing. There's misdirection all around. Well, the image of darkness is an image that the Bible uses throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, to convey to us the state of the world that we live in. That the world that we live in is a world that is dark, a world that is cracked, a world that's marred, a world that is confused, a world that is broken. You see, the Bible doesn't just apply this image of darkness to our world. The Bible actually applies the image of darkness to our own hearts. The Bible says that our hearts are darkened. Our hearts are cracked. They're marred. They're confused. They're broken. And the Bible calls that sin. And what sin is, is sin is rejection and rebellion against a God who has been nothing but good and only good and only gives life and only gives flourishing. But we, in our hearts, we sit in darkness. And if that was the end of the story, we wouldn't have much hope, would we? There wouldn't be much hope for us if we were stuck in Linville Caverns with the lights off and no idea of where in the world to go. Well, thankfully, Mark 15 shows us that we do have a hope. We have a hope. We have a hope in Christ. And what Mark 15 drives home to us is that the light of the cross consumes our darkness. That's the big point tonight, is that the light of the cross, of what Jesus has done on the cross, absolutely, utterly consumes our darkness. And we're going to get at that through these two images of darkness and light. So let's dig in here and think about darkness a little bit together. Last night, Reed shared with us the betrayal of Jesus. He talked about how there was suspense that was leading up to that, and then there was this surprise. And the craziest of surprises is, is that the betrayal of Jesus by Judas is what actually brings us our salvation. And all of those events that Reed talked about last night, they occur under the darkness of night. Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his trial with the council there in Jerusalem. All of this takes place under the cover of darkness at night. And then in Mark 15, the day dawns. And the council comes to this guy named Pilate. Pilate is the Roman governor of the province where these people live. So he's basically the guy who is in charge. And they come to Pilate and they say, look, this man needs to be arrested. He needs to be crucified. And Pilate's like, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. What has this guy done? And they go on to explain, and Pilate's like, I still don't see what this guy's done that is wrong. But, but the council's pressing in and pressing in. And Pilate, wanting to kind of like keep control of everything, he's like, look, I, I'll do this for you. We do this every year around your feast time, around Passover right now. I will release a prisoner that is in prison to you. And so Pilate puts up Jesus and then another prisoner, a man by the name of Barabbas. 
Barabbas is described to us as a, a murderer and an insurrectionist. So basically a guy who was planning to overthrow the Roman government. And then he says, which one do you want? And the crowd say, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And then the crowds cry out about Jesus, crucify him. Crucify him. They've turned on Jesus. You can imagine Jesus being all alone. Imagine yourself there. Like you're the one who's standing there and you have a crowd about as big as this room, probably even bigger, much bigger actually, yelling crucify him. Crucify him. You can imagine how dark it must have felt to our Savior. And then Pilate, not wanting to, you know, rock the boat, says, okay, all right, all right, you guys can have him. You guys can crucify him. And so Pilate then commands that Jesus is taken back into the palace. He's taken behind the walls of the palace, uh, covering in the dark, as it were, what it is that is about to happen. And what descends upon Jesus is a battalion, a Roman battalion, which is roughly about 600 men. If you've ever been ganged up on by two or three people, you know how that feels. Imagine 600. 600 on one. There it is. And these 600 men, what they do to Jesus is they beat him. They put a purple cloak on him and a crown of thorns on his head. They mock him. They fake, like bow down before him. They spit on him. Some of the darkest behavior that you and I could ever even imagine. We read about it and and we find ourselves sitting in that darkness. We, we, we begin to feel the weight of what it is that's happening to Jesus, what it is that he is going through, that he is all alone, treated like a criminal. And then we're told that Jesus is so weak, he can't even carry the cross that they're going to hang him on. You see, that was part of the gig too. If you were going to be crucified, you had to carry your cross to go be crucified. But Jesus had been beaten so badly that he was too weak to do it. And so they say, hey, Simon, Simon, this guy... Simon of Siren, hey, help him, help him with this. And so Simon helps Jesus and carries his cross for him. And then Jesus is hung on a cross to die all alone in the dark, an excruciating death. And then in verse 33, we see that from the hours of basically 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., darkness covers the land. And at about six o'clock, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To be forsaken, to be left all alone, utterly in the dark. Imagine, imagine how Jesus must have felt. And what all of this darkness conveys to you and to me is the darkness of the weight of our sin and the cost that it took for Jesus to actually take our sin and become our sin and in exchange give us forgiveness and life in him. The world we live in is dark, but we are too. Our hearts are deeply dark. None of us in this room this evening stands innocent. No one in this room has walked through life perfectly. 
Every single one of us has done things, said things, thought things that were for selfish motive and personal gain. Willing to take advantage of others to get that every single one of us sits here tonight in that position. Uh, some of you know mine and Carrie's story of, of how we met. We actually met as missionaries. And when we met as missionaries, they, they put us on this kind of basically like a compound in Richmond, Virginia. And, uh, and they put us on there for eight weeks together before we were supposed to go to the field. And they put a bunch of young 20-something single men and women together. And they said, by the way, you're not allowed to date. Um, great idea, right? Um, so Carrie and I, that, we met in that process. Um, and then we, we ended our eight weeks. And by the end of our eight weeks, we were like, I think, I think this is going somewhere. I think this is heading somewhere. Um, and, uh, but we decided we wanted to try and stick it out, you know, um, and go to our separate places that we had committed to and everything. And so Carrie, she went off to Spain and I went off to Nepal. And about nine months into our term, we were like, this is for the birds. We want to be married. And so we came home. And one day shy of having had the DTR, uh, for those of you that don't know that, that's defined the relationship. So one year shy of that, actually having that conversation, Carrie and I got married. And seven months of that, we weren't even in the same country. And our first year of marriage was awesome, <laughs> as you can imagine. As a matter of fact, to hear Carrie tell it, she tells it like this. And we actually, yeah, like, I've officiated a number of weddings at this point. And so one of the things that if somebody comes and asks me to officiate a wedding, one of the things they're signing up for is doing premarital counseling. And Carrie and I like to do that together. And this is part of what we share with them. You see, Carrie, when she married me, she thought, man, this guy's a missionary. He loves Jesus. He's serious about the Bible. He will never hurt my feelings. You laugh because some of you know me already, <laughs> right? And our first year of marriage was really hard because we both found out about each other. You know what? We kind of like being right, each of us. We're pretty prone to demanding our own way. We like things to go the way that we want them to go. I like things to go the way that I want them to go. I'm even willing to manipulate somebody else to get my own way. Carrie is too. <laughs> the point is this, is that every single one of us is covered in darkness. None of us is innocent. We all have moments and times where we demand our own way where we are willing to use others to get what we want. And the Bible says that that is sin, and that sin pervades our hearts, and it brings a darkness to us that we are bound by apart from some sort of light shining in the darkness. And that's exactly what happens here. That's exactly what happens. You see, because in the midst of the darkness, Mark 15 shows us that there is a light that consumes our darkness. And that light is the light of the cross. The light of Jesus hanging up there for mine and your sin. And, it's, and it comes to us in these really unexpected ways, the light does. You see, because the light comes to us in the silence of Jesus as he becomes our darkness. The light comes to us in the silence of Jesus 
when the crowds cry, give us Barabbas and crucify him. The light is found in the silence of Jesus as he's tortured. The silence of Jesus as he is mocked and made fun of. The silence of Jesus as he's spit on. The light comes to us in the silence of Jesus as they strip him naked, totally exposed. The light comes to us in Jesus not looking for an out when it comes to our darkness, but seeing it through to the very end and enduring for us. Because as the centurion tells us, truly, truly this man is the Son of God. And what that means is that even though every single one of us here sits in darkness and our hearts are dark and we are sinful, the Son of God never had sin. Not one iota, not one thought, not one word, not one action because he is the Son of God. And Mark already told us what he was all about in verse 1 of his gospel. The good news of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who's come to be our salvation. Jesus didn't have any sin. He was sinless. And so the light of the cross is that even though Jesus was without sin, he became my sin and became your sin for you and me. The light of the cross is seen in Jesus' cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken. Utter darkness to deal with our sin. The Father turned his back on Jesus to turn his face to you and to me. And the effect? The curtain in the temple is torn. Light floods out. God's grace is seen in full as Jesus lays down his life for you and for me. And he cries, it is finished. He has made a way. He has made a way for our sin to be fully and finally forgiven on the cross. Jesus is the only one who could do it. Because he's the only one of us without sin. And the only way that he could do it was by actually becoming our sin for us, in our place. He's the only one, and this is the only way. In June of 2018, an uh, under-12 uh, soccer team in Chiang Rai, Thailand, was playing soccer on the beach there. And uh, they were having practice. Their coach was there, was with them. And, uh, and, and after practice, they decided they were going to kind of do sort of a team building thing and go into some of the caves that were right there around, uh, around the coast where they were at. And as they went into these caves to do some exploring, the monsoon rains that weren't expected for another few weeks later decided to come in that moment. And when the monsoon rains came, what it did is it flooded the caves and it pushed that soccer team, those 12 boys and that one coach, deeper and deeper and deeper into the cave, deeper and deeper and deeper into the darkness of the cave. And people around, they knew where in the world they had to be, but there was no way they could find them. These caves are like a labyrinth. How in the world are you ever going to find this soccer team? These boys were without hope apart from some sort of miraculous rescue. 
day in and day out, the tide coming in and flooding the caves and coming back out. Day in and day out, them having no idea where in the world they're at. The lights are shut off. It's total darkness for these young boys, day in, day out, making it impossible for them to make their way out. As a matter of fact, they wandered two and a half miles deep into these caves from where they entered in at. The Thai government says, all hands on deck. And so they send everybody in to try and rescue these boys. They send in these advanced tactical units, basically like our Navy SEALs, to try and dive in there to go and to find these kids. And one of these Navy SEALs basically even dies trying to go in to find these kids. Seemed utterly hopeless. Utterly hopeless. And just when it seemed like all of them would die... And those who were attempting to find them would actually die trying. Out of nowhere comes this ragtag, no known group of weekend warrior cave divers in Britain who had gotten wind of the significant challenges facing rescue efforts. And only a handful of people in the world had the kind of experience and the skill set to even begin to think about navigating this. And it just so happened it was this bunch of weekend warriors. They had been doing deep cave diving, labyrinth diving for years and years and years. They had been having to figure out how to gauge oxygen, how to to actually navigate caves, how to know where you're at when you're inside of there and everything. And to look at them, I'm going to tell you, You probably wouldn't want to put your life in their hands. I know I wouldn't have. But the truth is, is they were the only ones. They were the only ones who had the kind of skill set. They were the only ones who had the kind of experience to be able to actually go in and try and attempt to rescue these boys. And the only way for them to do it, the only way for them to do it was to put their own lives on the line. As a matter of fact... Before each dive they went in, they looked at each other and they said, this is a one-way ticket. We go in, we go in until the job is done. They knew the potential of what it was going to cost them, that it could actually even cost them their lives to go in to find these boys in this deep, dark labyrinth of caves and save their lives. But one by one, they dove in two and a half miles deep, They found each of these boys, and one by one, they came two and a half miles back out. As a matter of fact, with the vast majority of the boys, they actually had to put them under sedation, and they don't even remember being brought back out. It took hours to get them back out, and one by one, they brought each and every one of those boys out of that cave. There's only one way for them to do it, and they were the only ones who could do it. Friends... Jesus is the only one who could. And the cross was the only way. And he did it. He knew what it would cost him. He knew it was a one-way ticket. And he looked at you and he looked at me and he said, oh man, yeah. So I can have them? 
And in the irony of ironies, it's through the death of Jesus that you and I get life. It's through him taking the crushing, dark weight of your sin and of my sin, dying a death that we deserve for us and bringing us one by one, one by one into the light of the cross, giving us life, rescuing us. It's only Jesus. It's only Jesus and it's only the light of the cross that consumes my darkness, that consumes your darkness, that consumes our darkness. Jesus knew exactly what it is he was in for and he saw it through all the way to the end. And that's exactly what we see at this table. When we come to this table, we see that Jesus really and truly is the only one and that the cross was the only way. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he was celebrating the Passover with his disciples. He took bread and he broke it. And he said, take and eat and remember, this is my body given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink of it, all of you. As often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord Jesus' death until he comes again. We proclaim that he really and truly is the only one and that the cross really and truly is the only way. This table is a picture of God's grace to you and me. You see, because what Jesus did, we couldn't do anything to earn it. He gives it to us freely, and that's called grace. And so this table pictures the grace of God to us and Jesus willingly coming to lay down his life for our sin. And it's also a promise. It's a promise that Jesus isn't done with you and me yet. He is still working on us. He is still growing us in his grace. He's still growing us in revealing to us the depth of our sin and the depth of his grace to us on the cross. So if you are here this evening and you belong to Jesus, if you have said, yes, Jesus, you are the only one and the cross is the only way, this table is for you. Come, take and eat. But if you're here with us this evening and you wouldn't say that, that wouldn't, be, that, that wouldn't be something that you would say about yourself, that Jesus really is the only one and this really is the only way, then we wouldn't want you to partake of something that's not true of what you actually believe. And so we would ask that you let these elements pass you by. There's nothing magic that is happening here. And instead of coming and taking these elements, we would encourage you to pray. We would encourage you to consider the claims of the Bible, that Jesus really and truly is the only one and the cross really and truly is the only way. And I would love to talk to you about that. Any of the elders here would love to talk to you about that. But instead of receiving this, receive Jesus. Receive Jesus. But if you're here and you belong to him, this is his table and he invites you to come, to take, and to eat. I'm going to ask that the elders that are serving with us this evening, if they would go ahead and come up and you guys can kind of see a diagram up there on the board 
of, uh, nope, I see it up there. You see it right there. <laughs> of, uh, of how we partake by coming to the center aisle and then, uh, and then heading back out and heading back to your seat. And I'm going to ask if you would hold on to the elements uh, as you receive them, and then we will partake of them together. Uh, but if you would, uh, let's bow our heads. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your Son, who is the only one. And Jesus, that you would willingly walk to the cross for us and do the thing that had to be done and become our sin. And in exchange for that, we would get your righteousness. We would receive life instead of death. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Holy Spirit, we pray that as we come to this table this evening, that you would work in our hearts to reveal to us more deeply how sinful we really and truly are, but also to reveal to us more deeply how much bigger God's mercy and his grace to us in Jesus is than our sin. And would you help us to live in light of that reality of who we are in Jesus? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Come, come and receive.